This is the Engineering Career Coach Podcast, the only podcast dedicated to helping engineers succeed in work and life. The show is hosted by engineering enthusiast Anthony Fasano and Chris Knutson. Both are professional engineers who found success early in their careers and now work together to help other engineers do the same. Now it's showtime. Hi, everyone. This is Chris Knutson, and you're tuned in to Episode 78 of the Engineering Career Coach Podcast. This is the show for engineers who want to succeed in both work and life. I'm flying solo on this one, and I'm really excited to be bringing you today's guest, Mark Huritz. He's author of an awesome book called Leadership is Half the Story, and it's going to get us into the topic that I am really professionally interested in. It has a lot to do with organizational dynamics It's uh, sometimes referred to as the F word in organizational dynamics, and it is followership. And uh, we're going to be hearing from Mark in the main segment about its importance in a person's professional success. And we're going to unpack five really important followership skills and things that you can do to not only develop yourself as a leader, but to develop yourself as a very effective follower. So this is something that uh, I'm, I'm really interested in. I've Throughout my Air Force career and my professional career have been taught a lot about leadership, but very, very seldom has the terminology of followership come up, let alone any details on how to actually do it right. This is kind of an on-the-job training type of an arrangement that most of us go through. But today we're going to talk about what you can do to actually take concrete steps towards being a uber-effective follower where you work right now in the organization you're in. And you're also going to learn that if you are in a management position or what you consider to be a leadership position, there's definitely a dose of followership that's involved there. So a very, very awesome topic. I'm excited to have Mark on the show. But before we get into the main segment, I have a couple of engineering career coach items that I want to share with you. First, Anthony and I are excited to let you all know that we have launched a new component of the engineering career coach. We're now going to be helping to connect all of you, those of you that are looking for new jobs, with engineering companies. That's right. We have launched the Engineering Career Coach Jobs page. You can actually get to that by going to engineeringcareercoach.com. So it's all one word, Engineering Career Coach, and then do forward slash jobs, and you'll see the listings that we've got that are open and available right now. Now, this is going to be growing as we go along and start interacting with more engineering companies. These are companies that we have had opportunities to work with in the past. We have relationships with leadership that are in those firms, and we want to be trying to connect all of you with the job with the position that is going to help you not only design, but then build and execute an extraordinary engineering career. So we're really excited about bringing this service to all of you. Bookmark the site, check it out. It's going to be growing. We're really excited about it. Also, we're opening up early bird access for tickets to the May 12 through 14, 2016 Engineering Career Success Summit. It's going to be held down in New Orleans. Now, I realize that that's months out in the future, But these early bird ticket prices are only going to stick around for a short period of time. So this is an opportunity, if you've ever thought about wanting to attend one of these events, it's an opportunity for you to get in uh, with very low ticket price and to uh, make sure that you've got yourself booked so that you'll be there. We're going to be there. We're really excited about it. You're going to be hearing a lot more about the event uh, over the months to come. And uh, you can just go to the uh, Engineering Career Coach website page, hit the uh, Events tab, and you'll have the details there for the Engineering Career Success Summit. Uh, that, again, is going to be in next May down in New Orleans. Pretty excited about that. And I also want to give a shout-out to today's sponsor, PPI, who makes this episode and this show possible for all of you. So if you're thinking about taking the FE, PE, or SE exam this year, I really recommend that you check out PPI, the leader in engineering exam preparation. For a special 15% discount, you can use the promo code COACH 
at ppitopass.com forward slash coach. Again, that's PPI, the number two, pass.com slash coach. And use the promo code coach at checkout for a 15% discount on your order. All right. So one last little item here before we get into the main segment, and that's the quote. And that quote is, it's not your boss's job to get along with you. It's your job to get along with your boss. And so normally I don't like to quote unknown sources, but this one comes from actually earlier in my own career uh, from a boss who was giving me some followership one-on-one lessons. And you may think that the military is all about leadership. You know, it's important, but as you're going to find out in today's episode, that's only half the story. There's followership that's involved. And now with that, Mark Heritz, author of Leadership is Half the Story. And now it's time for the main segment of our show. I've got Mark Huritz with me. Mark is co-founder and chief insight officer of Flip Skills. He holds a PhD in cognitive neuroscience, an MBA, and two other master's degrees in physics and math. He's a faculty member of the Conrad Business, Entrepreneurship, and Technology Center in the Engineering School at the University of Waterloo, considered to be one of the top schools for entrepreneurship. In just this spring, Sam Altman in a New York Times interview called it the number one school in the world. So you have to go check that one out. As a serial entrepreneur and a lecturer at Conrad, Mark helps engineers and other students turn their ideas into businesses. Mark also has many years corporate and executive experience in areas from marketing to HR to actuarial, which we'll have, may have to ask him about that one when we get into the interview. Outside of work and family, his other passions are music, theater, and poetry. Mark, welcome to the show. Thanks very much, Chris. Very happy to be here. Yeah, I'm really excited about this one. And for uh, everyone listening, if you want to go check out all the information that we're going to be covering, and uh, take a look at the unpacked show notes for this show, you can go to engineeringcareercoach.com forward slash followership. We'll have, uh, as always in those show notes, a summary of the key points that we discuss in today's episode, as well as links to the resources, websites, and books that are going to get mentioned during the show today. And again, you can go to engineeringcareercoach.com forward slash followership. So I came across Mark and uh, his wife, Sam Hurwitz, on their book, that's called uh, Leadership is Half the Story. And we're going to jump into a lot of the details on this book. This is a topic that I'm pretty passionate about and uh, was, uh, was floored when I had an opportunity to read this book because the content within it completely resonated with me. And it was, uh, Mark, it was, it was just a natural, natural outcome that we had to get you on the show because the material that you've got that you and Sam have put into this, packed into this book, which I know is taking you a while to put together, is golden. And luckily, I've been able to get Mark, been able to get you on the show, and we're going to maybe extend this one a little bit longer than we normally do because of the uh, importance of the content here. And I think it's going to be something that's going to resonate with uh, with everyone that's out there. So again, thank you for coming on the show. So let's just jump into this because we've got a lot to a lot to cover. See, so, you know, I shared a little bit of your bio, but maybe you want to provide maybe just a little bit more kind of an outline of who you are, how you how you've amassed the experience that you have, and and what led you to put this book together. Well, I, I guess from my bio, you can sense uh, I'm a little bit restless and, uh, and and love both the world of ideas and the world of practice as well. So I, I kind of fell into my career, uh, as, and then as I was going along, I, I came to the point where I thought, you know, I need to develop a lot more skills. I want to move up in the, the, the corporate sense and really understand why I'm doing what I'm doing. Uh, I'd had some entrepreneurial experience as well, and uh, I really wanted to develop. So I took my MBA, uh, did a lot of a lot of different things in my MBA, including studying leadership. And when I got out of my MBA, I was 
kind of fast-tracked at that point for a senior executive role. I was in a, a top talent program and all that kind of thing. Uh, got some of my first uh, real managerial experience. But also looking around me, I noticed that uh, things weren't exactly as they were explained to me in the MBA. Things weren't happening the way I thought they would happen. And in particular, I noticed that, 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 that there was something missing. There were people who were, who were effective, who were getting promotions, who were getting opportunities, uh, who were just doing better. And I couldn't pin it on anything. They weren't necessarily the most technically strong. They weren't necessarily the best leaders or, or had the greatest ideas in the world. And so I puzzled about that for, I don't know, two or three years before it occurred to me, well, maybe there's this other thing uh, called followership that has an impact. And that, that kind of started my journey. And over time, it took over more and more of my interests uh, to the point at which I realized, you know, I'm going to have to invest some real, real time and energy in this. I'm glad that you did, because uh, the outcome of that was the book that we've all got the opportunity to read now. So I want to ask, you know, it's often difficult for, I think, a lot of people uh, to make a mindset shift that's necessary to recognize that maybe they are the ones that are the cause of not getting choice assignments. I mean, this is something that you just mentioned. You know, you kind of notice that, that things weren't maybe playing out the way that you'd been led to believe. So even though somebody might have the technical skills and the common sense and this, you know, type A, go get them attitude in the book that you mentioned that that might not be enough. So what's missing? Because it sounds to me like, you know, if you've got the skills, the technical skills and the common sense and this go-get attitude that, that you should be able to just make it all happen. What are we missing? It's, it's a really good question. And, and I think it's what's held us back from embracing this idea of followership even more. Uh, so just to give you some, some of the statistics uh, that we both uncovered and some of the research that we, that we did ourselves on followership, it turns out that as much as half of people's performance appraisals uh, are due to their followership skills. This is a bit of a shock because we think, you know, if, if I'm in a real quantitative type of uh, role, for example, you can measure my output, then surely that's going to be 100% of my performance appraisal. But if anyone's had a performance appraisal out there, uh, you'll realize that that just isn't the case. And uh, what surprised me, though, was, was how large a percentage of that was due to followership. Now, of course, if followership has no impact outside of that, then really it's kind of akin to, to kissing up and some of the other negative things that we sometimes think about it. But it turns out that about 17 to 43 percent of pretty much everything that we think is good in organizations, whether it's retention, how much people appreciate their jobs, how much they get done, uh, the quality of the work, the quality of the output, the client satisfaction with what's getting done, Virtually everything we can measure in an organization, there's a 17 to 43% improvement with good followership on a team than when there's not. In other words, it has a huge organizational impact. And it's more important today than it was 30, 40 years ago, because 30 years ago, about 20% of work was done in teams. Most of it was individual work back then, frankly. Now, almost all the critical work, about 80% now, in fact, is done in teams. And for teams, you need that balance of leadership and followership. It's no longer just, you know, individual effort. You can be a go-getter, but if you're not going and getting with other people, you're, you're really not going and getting anymore. Well, and I think this is really important uh, and a really important point to, to kind of drive home because you know, as engineers, uh, all of us are working in an environment where we're not solo solo engineers, even if we're solopreneurs out doing our own thing, we're, we're working with other people. 
you know, I thought it was interesting you mentioned that, you know, one half or 50% or so of the personnel appraisal is really based on these skills that are associated with followership. And I think that's that's really huge because at least in my own my own professional career growing up, a lot of as I think about it, as I listen to that that statistic, I think to myself, yeah, there were a lot of those aspects that were in there, but really the focus was on the leadership side of the business when it really probably was more on the followership side. I mean, is this something you find as you interact with a lot of industry? Are you finding that you know, kind of the main focus is on leadership aspects when really what a, what a firm or a company is probably interested in is the followership aspects? Absolutely. It, it's what we talk about. Now, the good news is that we see that changing. So when I started doing this and actually going and working with organizations, which was over 10 years ago now, I couldn't use the word followership in any of the engagements I did. It was literally the F word in business back then. (laughs) And uh, I had a, a real shift that happened. And it started about five years ago. I was teaching a group of, uh, of students, in fact, and, and uh, they were, they were technical students at a university. And uh, I wanted to teach them about leadership and followership. And so I started off, you know, going through my whole spiel about followership and why it's good and all that. And at the end of it, which was about an hour, I said, are you okay with the idea? And they said, oh, yeah, that's fine. And I was kind of taken aback because I'd never had quite such an easy response before. I'd always been getting pushback up to that point. And I said, really? Why is that? He said, well, you know, we follow people now on Facebook or Twitter or whatever. And it's just a way of, you know, showing your appreciation for somebody else. And so I think the good news is that social media is making this idea of followership a lot more palatable, and uh, we no longer now have to disguise it, uh, followership, by calling it something like, you know, leader support or membership or something like that. We can actually use this F word in business and get away with it. That's great. Because I think when people hear followership, and then maybe this is a generational issue, which which I don't think we're going to unpack in the discussion today, but... When I hear the word followership or when I first heard it, I would associate it with, you know, somebody who takes orders. They're not in a position of authority. They don't really have direction or the responsibility. But uh, this really isn't the case. You know, there's a lot of proactive actions that the follower can take and really should take. And um, I know that you use a term that I personally like, and that's the concept of this leader follower, which is a wolf pack, which, you know, I think is really kind of a cool so can you describe this for us a little bit, maybe in the context of a project team and an engineering firm? Sure, absolutely. When you think of a, a wolf pack, there's really two states in which the wolf pack can be in, one of which is their, their normal state when they're at home and there's nothing special going on. And they actually have a very distinct hierarchy. There's an alpha dog, you know, the alpha dog gets to eat first and maybe eat a little bit more of the choice food or whatever it happens to be. But then there's a second stage that they're in, which is their hunting stage. And that's when the wolf pack does something really quite different. And that's a lot like a project team, because really a lot of the key work we do these days in organizations is in this project mode. It's these non-routine group activities. When they're in this, this hunting stage, the wolf pack does something quite different. It's no longer the alpha dog now barking out orders that everybody else kind of follows sheep-like. But each of the wolves at one time or another takes initiative, takes the leadership role, if you will, in the group, goes out and does something. And then while one wolf is doing one thing, say circling around to the back to get the prey moving in one direction, another wolf will be doing something else. In other words, they're constantly exchanging these roles of leadership and followership. And the followership role is active. It's a supportive role. It's like 
if you're playing basketball, for example, you know, when you don't have the ball, that doesn't mean you just stand there and wait for someone to tell you what to do. You move into position to set a pick or to get in a place to rebound or somehow make the other person who's got the ball, the person who's taken on the leadership role, to give them more opportunities to act in a way that's going to maximize the effectiveness of the group. And so it's very much the same here for engineers in a project team, because when they're in project mode and it's not routine work anymore, you're going to need everybody's expertise. And when it's someone's expertise that's critical at that moment, really they should be the one taking the lead. And when they're taking the lead, then everybody else needs to have those strong followership skills to make that portion of what they're doing as strong as and effective as possible. And so what you want is that kind of wolf pack, supportive leadership, followership as this dynamic uh, set of interactions to make it maximally effective so that when you're hunting your prey, you catch it. That's an awesome illustration. And, and of course, in my mind, I'm thinking about everybody who's listening now going back and uh, introducing their uh, their project teams to this concept of the wolf pack. So uh, I'd, I'd love to love to hear feedback from, from folks that are out in the field that are able to maybe apply that concept when they take it back into their project team. So, you know, as you, you touched on it, so really that, you know, followership isn't something that's reserved for, you know, for a new employee or even a mid-level manager. And, I, and I've seen this from my own professional career as well, that really, you know, people all the way up the chain, if you will, at one level or another are, are followers. But you make the distinction that senior managers have the highest levels of followership skill and the greatest conceptual understanding of it. And I think this might be something that is, you know, maybe flies in the face of you know, reality or maybe expectation for a lot of people because they may be thinking that, well, senior managers or, you know, the, the senior partner of my firm or the director of my branch or my division, you know, they're, they're a leader. They're not really a follower. But can you explain how this is, why somebody might be in this senior level position but has this, you know, the very pronounced trait of followership skills? The first thing is, is there's, there's research around this which shows that, in fact, the percentage of your performance appraisal that's related to followership actually goes up as you move up the organizational chart. And it sounds at first a little counterintuitive, but when you think about it, imagine someone who's, you know, the, the chief technical officer of a firm, right? And they clearly, if you're an engineer, they're probably the main person that you look to as your lead and whatever. The fact is, though, is that when you look at what they do in their job, they do less technical work probably than anybody below them at that point. So that really only leaves them with two other things that are critical to them doing. One is leadership and the other is followership. Well, certainly they have to be better at leadership when they get senior because they you know, have a larger team to lead. But also the expectations for how well they will interact and how strongly they will interact with the other C-suite people or with investors also grows. Why is that? Well, imagine you're a front-level manager, and you've got someone who's just come out of school, getting their PE, you know, working for the firm. And if they have some behaviors which at the same time are a little bit off-kilter, you know, you put up with it because you know they're still early career, they haven't learned all the ropes yet, you value the technical stuff that they bring to the table. But the minute you move them up a level, you know, their technical skills become less important and you're less willing at that point to put up with kind of wobbly sorts of behaviors and things that don't just feel right to you. I mean, you want people around you who that if you were on a deserted island, you know, they're the ones you'd want with you to help you out. And so it's more than just pure technical skills. It's other things. 
in fact, when you take a look at the very top level, people will say, oh, the CEO is the head of the company and whatever. Well, if that's true, then how come that the average tenure of a, of a Fortune 500 CEO is only about three years these days? Well, who's firing them? They're getting fired by boards of directors. Why? In most cases, it's not because their business results are bad. In fact, it's because their followership, their ability to build those strong relationships with the boards to keep them informed just isn't up to the snuff that's expected of them. Now, there's some reasons why all this is important, that it's not just, gee, I don't like you kind of stuff. But I mentioned earlier, there's uh, you know some real performance aspects to this in terms of effectiveness and all those kind of things. But the truth is, the expectations just get higher as you go as you go up the ladder, and the people who aren't able to adapt to that don't get there. They're just not joined. They're not not asked to join the club. I think it's an important you know item to to really kind of drive home because again, if you know, for most people who are who have aspirations of making partner or working their ways into senior leadership in a, let's say a public engineering department, you know, they think, well, hey, I'm you know, I've got to be a really good leader. But uh, what you've just shared with us is that, well, they, you know, you really need to be as, as good of a follower, maybe even a better of a follower, because those are the skills that are going to be sought by, you know, by the tier of leadership above. And, you know, something that I guess I've found in my own career, and Mark, maybe you can, you can add to this, is that, you know, my thought on this is that you can't wait until you're potentially ready to be selected for one of those positions to all of a sudden develop these great followership skills. This is, this is something that you've got to be building and you've got to be creating this, these skills right from day one when you start in your first job, right? Absolutely. And, and the good thing about it, though, is that they really are skills. It's not a matter of luck. It's not a matter of personality. There's some real concrete skills. The other group that I'd say this is super important for is, is people who are top talent. And here's what I've seen happen over and over again, and it's a shame because it, it's fairly easy to, to talk about once you've got a language for it. The thing about being top talent is that you tend to move from job to job fairly often, and you have different leaders fairly often. Many times, people who don't choose you for the role, like someone will say, hey, this is a top talent, put them on your team, get them to work. And now you have to, as that person, you have to start working with this new leader and so you may go along fine for a time with people who just say, hey, you know, I'll accept some of the poor followership things you do because you're so strong in these other areas until you find that one leader who says, ah, that's not good enough for me. And then no matter how strong you are, your career goes off the rails. The place that happens a lot is for technical people like engineers when they finally come closer to the top of the engineering hierarchy. So within their department, and now they have to work with a lot of people outside their own area where their strengths are not quite as obvious. And people rely on these other things like your leadership and your followership skills now to form judgments about you. And, and if they aren't strong, then people are going to, what's called a pitchfork effect, that's going to influence how they think about everything you do. Yeah, absolutely. And we're going to get into the uh, these specific skills in just a moment. But I think uh, for everyone who's listening, the, the, the takeaway on this is that you really have to, from a skill development standpoint, and you're going to hear about what these skills are in just a moment again, but, but we're really talking a lot about these, the core skills, and it's something that Anthony and I touch on a lot on, on these episodes and over on our blog as well, which are communications and, and empathy and some of the emotional intelligence aspects that come into interaction with, with other people. So these are skills that you can't start developing these things when you're 
you know, when you're five, 10 years into your career, you know, these are skills that you've got to start working on and, and really be paying attention to straight out of the, you know, straight out of college when you first start into your engineering career. So something that's important. Before we jump into the skills, Mark, I want to share and, and touch on the sobering statistic, which, which really kind of hit me. Now, of course, like my background is is not through architectural engineering construction industry uh, up to this point. I mean, it is involved in, in that area, but it's more through the military side. But you, you share a statistic of a failure rate for leaders of 50 to 70, 75%, which I think is pretty amazing as far as the, the number of, of people who are, you know, who are in these leadership positions that are not succeeding. So how does a firm owner or even a young engineer manager, for that matter, best position themselves through the development of skills or different actions that they can take to make sure that they're in the 25 to 50% who actually succeed in their leadership efforts? Well, part of having uh, being a strong leader is is having a strong team. In fact, you know, if you if you want to choose between having a strong leader and having a strong team, you might almost rather have a strong team than a strong leader if you had to choose one or the other. One of the things you need to do in your leadership role that's really critical is coaching. And one of the aspects of coaching that are important is to be able to coach people on followership because it not only increases their own likelihood for success. Uh, but it saves you personally time and makes the team, you know, that come back to that number, 17 to 43% more effective in pretty much everything they do. To be able to coach it, you've got to understand it and know how to do it. Let me give you a real practical example from the project world, if I could. We've conducted uh, some of our own surveys and studies over and over again. Uh, my, my partner has a deep background in project management. In fact, she ran a project management office for a number of years. And we have done this with many groups now, but we started out by doing this with some focus groups of people who are, who are specifically in project management and had them just simple. It's a real simple activity. Write down for 15 minutes everything you've seen go wrong on a project. <laughs> <laughs> wow. Very cathartic. Yeah, no doubt. And here's what always happens. It's pretty remarkable. You get the full list of things. And if you do this for 15 minutes with five or six people, you're going to end up with well over 100 different things that, that will have been written down. You can organize them into six categories. And the six categories will be comprised of five separate skills, which, which I guess we'll, we'll talk about in just a minute, all of which are these interpersonal leadership followership type skills. And then one other category, which is called other and technical. So you put up these six categories up on the board and say, okay, now take all the things you've seen go wrong on projects and put them, you know, put them into each of the categories. And what you find is, is almost an exact split of one-sixth in each category. In other words, five-sixths of the things that go wrong on projects and why projects fail have to do with the interpersonal, largely leadership followership things that go wrong around, you know, ideas like communication and, uh, and culture and these, these kind of things. Only one-sixth of them are technical. That's just amazing, and you know, and I think I've I've seen that statistic in other documentation that I've read, uh, either out of us through PMI or some other books that I've read. But it's just it, every time I hear it or I see it, it's a sobering statistic that you know you you've got so much of this rides on how we interact with other people and the interpersonal skills, and it has very little in most cases to do with the actual technical aspects. Which at the end of the day, as engineers, we can usually 
we can always come up with a solution to the problem, but as soon as we introduce humans into the into the system, it seems to kind of go off the rails. So just you know, just phenomenal, phenomenal. Well, with that, let's let's shift the focus of the discussion at this point into these five areas of followership skill. And and I think what I'd like to do, Mark, is just kind of kind of unleash you to kind of go through and unpack these things sequentially because each one of these are gold mines. And uh, if you're if you're listening to this and you're sitting down, break out a pen and a pad of paper and write these down because it's going to be huge. If you're in your car driving, just take point. We'll make sure in the show notes we've got when this starts in the in the uh, episode discussion. But uh, but let's let's jump into this. So why don't we start off with uh, with number one? Okay. First thing I should say is that all these skills are are complementary pairs, and that is that for every every leadership skill, there is a followership skill that complements it. So the two work together like a system. You got to think of it like a, a couple's dance. It doesn't matter if one of the two is really strong. If the other one's weak, the couple as a whole doesn't look very good. They don't dance well. And that often the skills are complementary or one does, the other person has to find not the opposite thing, but the thing that kind of makes it the, the whole system work together. So on that, the first is around, the, is around making decisions. And uh, we call the, the followership side of, of the decision process decision advocating. Let's unpack that one because most people, I think, when they hear decision advocate, I mean, I'm kind of thinking devil's advocate. <laughs> yes. But I think, you know, to hear decision advocate, this is kind of a shift in, in terminology. So what, tell us a little bit more about this decision advocate. What are, we, what are we talking about here? Sure. The role of a devil's advocate, and it has some value. It, it comes actually from the canonization process where the person who who basically says no this person shouldn't become a saint uh, is a lawyer and they're actually called the devil's advocate and on the other side arguing for the person who made a saint was another lawyer called the angel's advocate in fact but in a in a in a project role the devil's advocate is the person who essentially tears down ideas and says why they won't work well it takes pretty much half a brain to come up with a whole list of reasons why something won't work. And uh, we've heard them all before, including we've tried that before and it didn't work back then. Frankly, it's not that hard, especially for someone who's trained in critical thinking, which is engineers, you know, you're trained your whole careers in how to think critically. It takes, like I say, about half a brain to do it. What takes something a whole lot more to do is to figure out how to make an idea, which after all, when someone first proposes an idea, it's usually pretty fragile there's bound to be things that are wrong with it. But if you can take an idea and figure out how to make it a great idea, then you've done something rather special. You've taken this germ of an idea and potentially turned it into a solution. Now, that doesn't mean we should never be critical about the solutions that get proposed. So what you really need to do as a decision advocate at one level is to take proposals that are made, turn them into something great. And then once you've done that with a few of the potential proposals, decide which of these great things is actually the one that's best to be implemented. Yeah, definitely. I think something that's maybe important to touch on here is that we're not throwing out the window the whole concept of risk management, which obviously comes into from a project realm. When we say that, you know, you shouldn't be a devil's advocate, like you mentioned, there's a difference between torpedoing somebody's idea when it's first been hatched versus taking a well-formed idea, maybe in the, you know, that's beyond the infancy stage and applying some risk management aspects to it. So there's a, there's a difference between those two. And I think it's probably important to maybe point that one out that we're not, you know, you're not saying that being a decision advocate means that 
that you just throw out risk management out the window because obviously that's that's something that we don't want to do as an engineer either. Absolutely, you don't because yeah, no, totally right on that. There's another aspect too of decision advocacy which is important, and that is that once a decision has been made, your job at that point really is to be the advocate for the decision, and that is you you don't want to be the person undercutting the decision. So you're with a boss, your boss has made a decision. Your role then becomes at that point to advocate the decision. After all, it's better to take a a poor plan and implement it well than to create a great plan and implement it poorly. And in fact, a lot of what becomes or what makes a decision look like it was a great decision is how well it's implemented. And the people who do that are the ones who figure out how to advocate for the decision and do something special with it in the implementation stage rather than continually revisiting it or saying that it's bad or whatever. I mean, that really serves no, no real purpose. There's, there's a wonderful saying that I love, which is that the grass isn't greener on the other side. It's greener where you water it. <laughs> how true that is. <laughs> so. You know, you may not always agree with every decision that's been made, but your job at that point is to water it. Yeah. You know, from my own experience growing up, I used to have a uh, boss. He said that we had we had one yes, but uh, when there was a decision made, you had your chance, your opportunity to voice your concerns about a decision that had been made with a yes, but if he did not accept your view of it and he said, well, it's going to stay the way it is, that was it. Discussion yes. was done. It's at that point now, it's that decision is as much my decision as it was my boss's decision. So I think it's a, kind of an important, uh, important concept to wrap one's mind around. I think the other thing about that, too, is to recognize where you are. We talk about a decision life cycle. Mm-hmm. And that early on, the very first stage, for example, of a decision life cycle is gathering the resources and then gathering the information. There comes a point where the decision is made. And beyond that point is when you want to stop uh, questioning and and go to the doing. Before that, though, you definitely should be questioning. So it's a question of understanding: Has the decision been made? If it hasn't yet, then absolutely, you know, bring up objections. There's a real reason to do that. And after it, though, you then need to really fall into that advocating mode and and getting on and getting on with the work. Yeah, definitely. We're not really going to go into it right at this point, but there's some distinctions we made in here, and obviously the the right environment has to be there, meaning that the the person who is the appointed uh, leader or project manager and the the people who are the who are let's say the followers in this case that you know that there's the right type of environment exists there the right type of personalities because i know from my own personal experience and from from many of my peers you know i've seen situations where they worked or i worked for someone where it was literally their way or the highway i mean there was there was no opportunities for dissension it was this is the way it's going to be and uh, you know you, you salute literally salute smartly and, and press on. So, so maybe that's you know we might be able to get into that maybe a little bit later on. But I think that's kind of an important the important thing to throw out there. So we we talked about the role in decision making that as the as the first um, the first one of these skills. How about the second skill, Mark? Right. So the second skill is around performing and the followership uh, side. The, the followership skill is actually called peak performing, and essentially. That comes to bringing your best self to work each day. There's more to it than that. But there's a lot of talk these days around, for example, you know, how do I make my staff more engaged? 
And the fact is you can't make someone engage. You can set up conditions where they might be more likely to bring engagement to work each day, but it really is your job and your followership role to bring that engagement, to treat your job like this is the best job that you could possibly have, um, that it's your dream job. You, you need to be making commitments wisely and keeping them. Something really important is the idea of taking informed initiatives. That is, we all love go-getters, but the go-getter who's going to get stuff that we don't want is not particularly useful. In fact, just the opposite. Uh, and so taking initiative is great, but you want to take initiative that shows also that you understand what it is that you're the objectives that your leader is trying to achieve. And so part of your role in peak performing is to truly understand in a really deep way what, what it is that your leader in particular is trying to achieve. And then when you're taking initiatives, always use that as the, as the benchmark of, uh, you know, is this the kind of initiative I should really be working on? So uh, that's something else you want to do. You also want a succession plan yourself. There's nothing worse. I had a, a boss who once told me, and I think I think he was dead on on this one, that if you're indispensable, that's exactly the time I want to get rid of you, because you, you're you're not going to be there forever. And so, what you need to do is be succession planning yourself, and as well owning your own development plan. So I think there's a lot of aspects to performance that are are really uh, important for you to bring in your followership role to everything you do. Those are some really important points there. And of course, as I was sitting here listening to this, it was running through my mind of experiences that, that I've had. I mean, one of the ones that, that I vividly remember was, you know, and I was told this early on in my career, and it was something that I really practiced throughout most of that. And what that was always, you know, I worked for someone, but my goal was to always try to perform to my boss's boss's expectations. Yeah. Not only did I mean that I had the organizational and political astuteness of what was going on, and was executing what was on my, my immediate boss's agenda, but I was also working that agenda for his boss or his or her boss, which, you know, obviously makes them look good, makes me look good. But more importantly, that was, there was also some, some learning in that and what it took to be in those leadership positions. So, so this idea of peak performing is, is really a great one. I mean, it kind of, kind of unpacks a lot of things. In fact, it makes me think of the, uh, Teddy Roosevelt quote, which I'm sitting here looking, it's on my computer monitor right now, which was do what you can with what you have where you are. You know, you got some uh, brilliant advice on that. We, we call that the rule of two. And uh, it's so useful for so many things. You know, it's your boss's boss ultimately who promotes you, not your boss. And so that deep understanding of what they need two levels up is oh, it's just perfect advice. Mark, the other piece of that is, especially for any young engineers who are looking to you know, who have the aspirations for career advancement, for career progression, you know, looking and trying to think forward that up to that second level, it's almost like this concept of rubber bands where you're literally connecting yourself to two levels above you and you're kind of pulling yourself in that direction. There's a lot that we can, you know, we could talk about on that, but we've covered two of five. We've, we've hit decision advocating and peak performing. <laughs> Let's jump into this, uh, this, this third one, if you can wrap that one for us. The third one's organizational agility. And it's the idea of being able to understand and fit into all the different environments that you might find yourself in, uh, in your role, and learning how within that environment to be effective. So, for example, you're on multiple projects 
especially if you're a young engineer, you know, some of them will be with other engineers, which is fine because you'll totally understand that community. I mean, these are, these are your people. Uh, but you'll also find yourself on a lot of cross-functional teams or even being seconded into some other area. And it's really important there to understand how people work, how people get things done, and to be able to take advantage of that so that you can add the maximum to each of those teams. And we call it organizational agility because it's the skill that essentially allows you to move around within an organization or from organization to organization as you need. Uh, absolutely critical for anybody. To, to give you a real simple example, let's say you're writing a, a particular report for your boss who happens to be uh, the vice president of engineering, and they decide to just forward the report on to other members of their executive team. Now, all of a sudden, this communication, which you wrote for a very engineering type of, of community, in other words, your boss, is being distributed to a wider audience. Well, to what extent is it communicating to them in a way that makes sense? And so it's, it's taking this idea of organizational agility and applying it to everything that you do. That's huge. And that was a great example to use as well, because from a communication standpoint, you know, we always tell people, you know, write or develop your presentation or speak for your audience. Mm. And in this particular case, you know, as you're writing a report for your, for your immediate boss, if you're thinking that your boss is the, is the end uh, reader or the audience for that, you may be missing it. And, uh, you know, you've got to be, you got to be thinking again, you got to be thinking forward beyond your boss and where is this, where is this report going? Who else is going to be seeing it? So I think that's huge. You know, one of the other aspects of organizational agility, how does political astuteness play into that one? I think that comes into it as well. It, you do have to understand what are the politics of the situation, but I think to put that in concrete terms, because politics has kind of a, you know, we're involved in an election year and uh, politics can have a bit of a bad, a bad name to it, frankly. It's really understanding things like, What's important to people around here? What are the norms? I can give you a, a case of um, a company that I went into was a was a, a large manufacturing firm, and we were brought in because they were turning out products, but it was taking three years to develop new products, and that was way too long a life cycle for for the business. And what was happening was is that uh, the products were being developed by engineering and then shipped over to operations. And operations were sending it back saying, hey, we need all these changes. And engineering would say, oh, I can't believe we need all the rework. And it, this would go on and on until after three years, they finally had something which was acceptable to both. And of course, everyone had the right things in mind. Both wanted what was best for the customer. But from an engineering perspective, what was best for the customer had to do with technical improvements, incorporating the latest advances in the marketplace and all that. From an operations perspective, what was best for the market was something that could be ramped up quickly and be produced with you know, pretty much zero uh, error. And they had a variety of different criteria. And while both were working for what they thought the good of the customer was because they weren't communicating their own expectations and making those understood, it was creating a lot of back and forth in the work. And this is on a larger scale what can happen on the on the smaller scale of just the interpersonal, if you're working on a cross-functional team and you're coming in with your engineering role and you're not really understanding deeply the priorities of the team, you could well be developing solutions which just the team isn't able to adopt or isn't willing to adopt and aren't, and aren't making you as effective as you could be in your role. Definitely. 
So really the key takeaway in all this is you can't be head down into your work. You really need to be eyes up, paying attention to what's going on around you and yeah. kind of dancing. I think you use that you use that terminology yeah. throughout the book quite a bit, uh, the analogy a lot of the uh, you know, dancing with your dance partner. And in this particular case, it's really with in the organizations with the other people that you're working with. So enormous. And we do name it sometimes politics, but you know what? You can't put people together without having relationships. And, uh, you know, and, and part of the role is for everyone to be involved in developing them. Definitely. All right. So we're at, uh, that was number three. We've got, uh, we've got a couple more here. Let's jump into number four. The fourth one is around communications. And uh, we specifically call a communications from a followership uh, role, dashboard communicating. There's a difference between leadership communications and followership communications. Really, the, the purpose, the core purpose of leadership communication is to unleash follower initiative. Because our strong belief is that the people who provide most of the creative input and do a lot of the work in an organization are when you're in your followership role. The complementary side of that, then, is that the followership communication, your role is to stimulate leadership action. In other words, when you're communicating to your leader, what you need to be thinking all the time in your communication is, what do I need them to do? Whether it's to make a decision, take a specific action or whatever. We're all flooded with emails these days. And so many of them are these long streams of, you know, 25 different uh, people who've replied to something. And sometimes it's an FYI and et cetera. No one has time to read and properly process these. What we need are clear, concise communications that totally understand who it is that's going to be reading them and what the objective of the note is. And from a followership perspective, your objective should always be to stimulate some kind of leadership action. If you're not doing that, then the communication is wrong. This is dynamite. And, um, you know, I'm just going to maybe go off. I'm not going to go on a segue on this one because I just really what I want to do is I want to share some of my own experiences on this. So I had a couple different opportunities where I was a director of public works with uh, with a couple hundred people working for me. And so most people might look at that and go, well, this is, you know, so you were in a leadership role. But but of course, I worked for somebody else who worked for someone else who worked for someone else. And what I did, and this was something that I picked up from boss's boss was a communications method that that he implemented. He he basically had told everyone, listen, if it's more than five lines long, I'm not going to read it. And so he had a this email structure, which was called it was called an IFA, issue, fact, action. And your emails had to had to correspond to that. And and I capitalize on that. This happened about halfway through my my career, my, my military career, and I capitalized on it and used it throughout the rest of my career. And it was a gold mine because I never either word I never sent out FYI messages. Very seldom did I ever do a, a situational awareness type message. I always use these these IFAs because it was here's what the issue is, here are the facts in bullet format. This is the action that I need you to take. And it was an absolute gold mine. And one of the other things I would do, Mark, is I would I was very much and this is where the organizational agility piece comes into it, was aware of when my boss would go to certain meetings because I would look at his calendar and I would make sure that he walked into those meetings with the right IFAs in his hand so he could print them out in order to make things happen when he was sitting there, which would afford my own 
I won't say my own agenda, but it would, it would forward our own ability to get work done or to solve problems or overcome hurdles that we had uh, at my level. So, so those are some, some practical examples or some practical applications of this dashboard communicating. I think this is a golden, absolutely a golden idea. I love that IFA idea. It's great. I think I may even have a couple of those. If I do, I'll, I'll, I'll share them in our show notes. So uh, when you go out to take a look at the show notes, there may be a couple of those in there for you. So let's move into that. We've, we've gone through number four. So we've hit decision advocating, peak performing, organizational agility, and dashboard communicating. Let's unwrap this last one. Number five. The last one's one of my favorites. It's, it's a relationship building. And the, the, the main idea here is just from a symmetry perspective, your leader may have 5, 10, 20. I've known people who had as many as 30 or 40 direct reports that they have to relate to. In terms of building that core relationship between people, it only makes sense that the person in the followership role takes on more of the accountability for doing that relationship building because they have more time and energy and capacity to, to do that. The problem is, is that so many of us get into a followership role and then sit and wait for the other person to make all the moves to develop the relationship that'll help make this work. And that's completely a wrong way to do it. In fact, some people have said, you know, in a followership role, you should take 100% of the accountability. I don't go quite that far. But I do think that if, if you aren't making those kind of moves to build the relationship with your manager, then uh, you're making a huge mistake. There's a couple of things around that I think that are really important, one of which is to scrap the golden rule. We've all, we're all taught it as kids, probably by our parents, do unto others as you would have them do unto you. But what you need is not the golden rule in building relationships, it's the platinum rule. And the platinum rule is that you do unto others as they would have you do unto them, right? So you've got to think about uh, what the other person needs from you, not based on what you would need if you were in their position, but what they need because they are in their position. And that's really different. You got to think about, you know, what are their strengths? What are their challenges? Would they agree? Let me find out from them. You basically have to give them your full support. One of the best things you can do with your leader is to just give them your full support and let them know it because we don't do that nearly enough. We're always waiting for kind of that praise to come down and the recognition and acknowledgement to come kind of down from above. But, you know, it's like any of this relationship stuff. The more you give, the more you get. And if you start giving that appreciation for the things that they're doing, then you'll find it just builds a relationship like magic. This one is, I think, as you already you pointed out, this is a really important one. And it's, I have to say, it's, it's almost something that I wish that I would have been able to have read about 10 years ago in my career. I mean, I, I think I did a fairly decent job. Of, of doing the upward relationship building, but to see and, and to hear in this discussion right here, even for myself, I just think to myself, okay, here's, here's where I did something. I, I could have done this better. I should have done that better. So if you're, if you're listening to this, we just talked about this relationship building and the platinum rule. Um, if you have to hit rewind, listen to this section again, because all five of these are important, but this one is I really think is the platinum one because so much of so much of my understanding of how the relationship between follower and leader is was that it was really the leader's responsibility to have to initiate the conversation and to you know really put the energy into developing the relationship 
but it's really it's really kind of flipping that on on its head and saying, well, no, as a follower, you really need to step forward and to be taking responsibility for developing that role or that that relationship with the leader because their bandwidth is going to be severely restricted to really put the time and energy into that. So absolutely huge. So I'm really appreciative of you unpacking that one for us. If, if I could also um, add to that too, in your role as a leader, it's really useful to be able to have that discussion with your, with your team and say to them, you know what, you have more of the accountability to help build this relationship because as well, the leader has to, you know, be equitable to all of the team members. You don't have that same kind of as in your followership role, that kind of equity thing, because you've only got one leader. And so to actually be able to sit down with them and say, hey, your accountability is to build the relationship uh, and I will support you in that. That's a really powerful message when you're a new manager coming onto a team. Yeah, absolutely. That's important. Definitely important. Okay. So we've gone through the five followership skills, which are, are really, really huge. And I know that in the, again, in the book, there's uh, these are, there's complementary leadership skills that match each of the five followership skills. We're not going to jump into those in, in this episode, but let's, let's kind of move from these five skills. We're going to still come back and touch on these again, but I, I want to move now to just having this discussion. We're going to kind of move back into the decision-making mode here. So we talked a little bit about this previously, but I want to kind of pull the string a little bit more. And that is, I think everyone has been in a position, and I know that I have personally have been in these these positions where a decision has been made and there's not 100% agreement, meaning that, you know, this, this is the decision. I've been given my, my marching orders. This is the direction that we're going to go. And I don't completely agree with this. How does somebody deal with it? Is this just one of those situations where you, know, you just kind of get, you got to get over it and just move on? Or what else do we dealing with here? So how, how does somebody just deal with that? What are your thoughts? It's a tricky one. I, I think the first thing you have to dis- decide is what is it about the decision that you disagree with? And a lot of times, you know, we frame something as I have a moral disagreement with this decision or whatever, when in fact, it would, wouldn't have been something that you chose. And that's okay. But, you know, if it's not life-threatening, then frankly, it's just life. And you do in a number of these cases, kind of have to get over it and say, I can take this decision that was made and I can make it something really good in the implementation. Is it what I'd have done? No. But another way to think of it is this too. I mean, oftentimes a decision has been made at a higher level than you are. And I think of it as, as a couple of people standing on a mountain at different places on the mountain looking out and at the, it doesn't matter how good your vision is if you're sitting near the base of the mountain, the person who's sitting near the top is going to see further than you. They may have other information that you don't have. They may have different pressures or whatever that you don't know about in the system. And so sometimes when we think, well, I wouldn't have done this, maybe you would have if you had all the same view that this other person has. The point is, is that by sitting back and saying, I think this is a bad decision, you're not making anything happen. And so better to go, you know what, I'm going to see what I can make out of this decision and go for it. Absolutely. As we're kind of talking about this, something, something to pull out is, is that we've already touched on this in the discussion, and that is, is from a career standpoint, each of us has this responsibility to be, to be responsive to our boss, to be responsive to our client or to the, you know, the organization or the people that we're supporting. You know, as long as 
the decision is not illegal, unethical, or immoral. Right. Really, at what point do you make the do you make the distinction beyond those three? And what I would throw out is that if you, if, let's say you're in an organization, you're with a firm that you plan to be there for a while, um, or you want to be there for a while. There's there's positions you're you're trying to go after, or you're in you're in public sector and you're within the organization trying to get you know trying to get forward momentum. If you're seen as someone who is a who's going to be rocking the boat, who's who's not going to be able to work and get along with other people, and this is really gets back into that teamwork role because of the way that you stand up against decisions are being made, it's not going to help you out so much on those performance reports. So something to think about there. So I know um, something else maybe we'll, we'll kind of touch on, in, and that is the, on the, really the topic of feedback and uh, giving specific and actionable feedback, which, which I think is you know, really kind of, it's very helpful. It's tricky. And I think a lot of people aren't necessarily all that comfortable with giving specific directive feedback even if it's for the betterment of betterment of a partnership. So, you know, feedback has to be delivered carefully and I think most people understand that and how it's going to be received and how it's going to be action. Can you provide some examples of what you consider to be effective feedback? Sure. The first thing I want to say is what not to do because the the standard and it's got some names that I don't think I can repeat even on a podcast here, but the standard advice for feedback has always been say something nice then give whatever negative feedback you need to give and then say something nice. <laughs> <laughs> and you may have heard some of the pejorative names for this, but, uh, but anyway, uh, it's been shown that it does not work. It's, it's ineffective because all people remember is the, uh, the stuff that you criticized. You can give them 20 compliments, one critique, and everything else will be something like a Peanuts cartoon. It'll be the wah, 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 and you did this wrong, wah, 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 wah. And that's all the person remembers. The way to, to provide really good feedback, this isn't going to always work, but in most cases what's going to work is you start out by looking at specifically what has been done and saying what are the positives about it. And this can be even something that was really well done. How, what are all the ways we could improve this? And then plan. So it's really not enough to just talk about what happened or what went wrong or what could be improved, but you then have to put a plan in place to do it. Like we call this process the PIT process, positives, improvements, and plans. And so, for example, uh, here's a case that, that happened. I'm going to disguise a few of the details, but uh, a large amusement park, vice president of the amusements, asked the senior engineer, you know, they just put in a, a proposal for a new, a new uh, ride, which was fairly good. And the, the vice president said, hey, here are all the things that are good about it. So if I gave you an extra $5 million, he went on, what could you do to make it even more exciting? So there's the way you start looking for improvements, right? You start changing scenarios and saying, how can we make this even better? All right, then how can we plan for this? Now, what if I didn't do that, but still wanted some of the same improvements so that you can lead people through a process of taking whatever has been done and making it better? And it could be a report someone's produced. It could be uh, some action they've taken. It could be a way that a role they've behaved, anything you like. You just start by talking about the positives and what they did and then try and figure out all the ways that that can be improved and then, you know, plan for making those improvements. It's, it's a much simpler way of, of getting people to actually change their behavior. I think this is an amazing skill to, to learn and to develop. I know it's one that I myself am, am still working on. It's funny you brought up the, uh, <laughs> you know, the, uh, 
the negative, the positive, the negative. There was a, a certain type of sandwich we used to call that when uh, <laughs> when I was growing up. And in fact, yes. uh, I will I will admit it here on the podcast that uh, I had I've actually employed that methodology for uh, for feedback. And I'm going to tell you right now that it doesn't work. <laughs> so uh, it doesn't work. It's terrible. You know, I think I've read somewhere, Mark, that there's a like a four to one ratio of good to bad yes. when it comes through communication. So that you know, by for the most part. For whatever reason, I think I know the reason. It's probably more evolutionary than anything that you know that we as humans tend to tend to really fixate on the negative. You know, you can go through an entire day of having somebody say, "Hey, you know, Mark, you just did awesome. You you rocked the world. You really hit that hit that presentation out of the park." And then at the end of the day, somebody says, "Hey, you know, I, I really don't like your tie." And you know, what are you going to fixate on? It's probably going to be that last comment. So that's all you remember. That's right. <laughs> exactly. So. <laughs> So I think maybe that plays into this one here as as well, and it's kind of an important thing to un, to really think about and try to figure out well what's the best way for me to bring that into either my followership or my leadership activities, which is going to be this concept of what are the positives and then trying to move things forward from that. So um, that's a huge idea. I really like that one a lot. So this is something that I'm really kind of interested in to hear myself, and I think a lot of the others are going to hear, like to hear this one as well, and that is, how is communicating as a follower different than it is for a leader? There are some similarities. I mean, both leaders and followers have to think about who's the audience and what's the objective of the communication. Again, the, the, the difference really is in what you're trying to accomplish, because when you're in your leadership role, what you're trying to do is provide the context so that people know what to do. They know how to take initiatives. They understand the frame within which they're supposed to work, what kind of risks are acceptable, what sorts of things are, are unacceptable. You know, So what you're really trying to do in the leadership communication sphere is talk to a group of people and give them the parameters within which they can really unleash their full potential. Because without knowing those parameters, then people will guess, they'll do wrong things, or they'll just stop. So for example, let's say you're trying to start an initiative as a leader of, of getting more creativity. What some people will do in that, and I've seen this happen, is they'll just set up this space and say, go create something. And people will look at each other like, I have no idea what I'm supposed to be creating. Can I buy things? You know, What are my parameters? The minute you start putting in the conditions in place, people will come creative. That's really what you should be doing from a leadership role. From a followership role, what you want to be doing is providing this full information, but in this, a clear, concise way as possible so that your leader can do what needs to be done. In other words, you're not providing them, you're providing them with the information they need to act, whereas they're providing you with the information you need as context so that you can take on initiatives. And so it's different. You'll do more communicating in your leadership role, which is kind of FYI sort of stuff, whereas you don't really want to do that in your followership role. In your followership role, you have to think, well, will my boss's boss read this? You know, how far up the chain might this go and what would be their concerns? So you have to think about that. In the leadership role, you're going to be wanting to think, well, what are the concerns as I go down the chain? And they'll be quite different than they will be, you know, up the chain. So the purposes of the two communications are very different, but you always, always, always have to think about who is my audience and what is my objective. In fact, I had a boss who was the best pure communicator I've ever, ever met in my life. And if he got an email or a report or whatever where the audience and objective weren't crystal clear, he'd write them on the top, audience, objective, 
hand you back the report and say, fill this in for me and then write it over. <laughs> nice. Yeah, oh, that's beautiful. I think I've been there before myself, as a matter of fact. So let's uh, let's shift here into a moment. We're, we're kind of winding down here, but I want to want to maybe dive into something that I know is is of interest to a lot of the listeners. It's also something that I know that Anthony and I talk a lot about because we're individually committed to establishing goals and uh, and executing those. In the book, you provide some delineation about three different types of goals, which I think was great. I mean, I literally highlighted this and, and copied it down into my notebook. Can you talk about the distinctions that you make between different types of goals? At one level, there's different types of goals that are personal goals, individual goals, and uh, team or organization or group goals. And the difference between them is this, that a personal goal is a goal that you have that, that is not shared with anybody. You may want to be great at bowling. You may want to learn a new language. These are all the sorts of things which are personal goals, but you don't have to share them. They often really don't involve work per se, but nevertheless, there's something you're interested in. The next are individual goals, and these are goals which at best are shared with one other person, usually someone like your leader. So for example, you may want to get a promotion. The reason these goals have to be shared with someone such as your leader is because if they're not, they aren't gonna happen. If you may be committed to them, but if nobody else is, I'll give you a practical example here. I was in a, a talent management program at one point in time, and I was told I needed to improve my negotiation skills, and so I was very committed as an individual goal to increasing my negotiation skills. My boss said, okay, that's fine. We'll do that. I'll give you some opportunity. We're coming up with a new contract that needs to be negotiated with a vendor, and I'll give you that opportunity. But then when the actual time came, it turned out some other things intervened, and he took on the role himself. In other words, it wasn't truly a shared goal because there was no impact to him if he didn't pursue it. That's the problem with individual goals that aren't shared, but nevertheless, uh, that's the second type of goal. The third type of goal is critical, and we often get these ones wrong, and that's the group goals. And let me give you an example of a group goal gone wrong. It was with a, an IT team, but this could equally apply in a lot of engineering circumstances as well, where the, the vice president of, of IT said, you know what, we have to get the projects done 5% faster. They were running over time. And so the architect at the beginning of the project uh, got their architectural plans done 5% faster and handed the plans off to the developers. And the developers did their coding and development work, and they got it done 5% faster and handed it off to the quality assurance folks. <laughs> and you can probably guess what happened with quality assurance. Uh, they did not get it done 5% faster. In fact, they got it done 20% slower, and the whole project <laughs> took longer, even at the regular speed. And the problem was is they turned what could have been or should have been a group goal into a bunch of similar or same goals. So everyone has the same goal, and they think because everyone has the same goal, it's a, it's a group goal. But it's not. A group goal is a goal that can only be achieved if everyone is able to achieve it. And what happened in this case was that what should have been a group goal is that I need this project to be done at the end 5% faster. Everyone turned into, I'm going to get my part done 5% faster, and it created a mess. 
So what we talk about here is that when you're trying to create especially these group goals, they have to be deeply shared and not shared in the sense of it's a sequential, I do my bit and hand it off to you, but shared in that I can't achieve success unless you also achieve success. And the greatest partnerships, teams, whatever, always at their fundamental heart have these deeply shared group goals. And the minute they aren't deeply shared, you find very quickly that everything falls apart. That's a huge distinction to make because a lot of the discussion that Anthony and I have is really about the individual goals. And this is something that's made me think that, you know, this may be a discussion that we need to start having more often about with folks, especially if you're going into management leadership positions, and that's making sure that you have these these shared goals. But I think the flip side of that is, is an individual is, again, this is kind of that organizational agility and really understanding what's going on within the environment in which you're operating, which is, you know, as, as, as to the example you provided, and that is, you know, if you're working on a segment of a design, it's making sure that everybody that you're working with is working towards that same in your mind, what the same goal is. And, I, and I'm, I'm thinking for myself personally of all kinds of different per- examples where I had perceptions or goals within my own head that maybe weren't 100% in sync with, with everything that was going on around me. So uh, yes. that's really important. I, I appreciate you uh, uh, unwrapping that one for us because it's uh, I think it's definitely, definitely good. Well, you know, at this point, in the episode, we're, we're getting ready to jump into the uh, Take Action Today segment of the show. And uh, Mark, if, if you've got a couple minutes, I'd like to, like to ask you to stick around and, uh, and provide us with maybe a little bit, one, one last piece of uh, actionable advice that we can share with people, if you're willing to do that. Absolutely, Chris. Awesome. So folks, we'll be back in just a couple minutes here with the uh, Take Action Today segment. All right, now it's time for our Take Action Today segment of the show. I've uh, asked Mark to stick around uh, to provide an actionable element of information you can use to enhance your followership. But first, I want to share a little bit more from our sponsor for today's episode, PPI. My listeners often ask me what exam prep materials or review courses they should use when preparing for the FE, PE, or SE exam. Hands down, I recommend PPI. If you plan to take your exam soon, I have a special code for listeners of my podcast. Use promo code COACH for 15% off your order at ppi2pass.com slash coach. Again, that's ppi, the number two, pass.com slash coach. And then use the promo code COACH at checkout for a 15% discount on your order. PPI's mission is simple. They want to help engineers pass the FE, PE, and SE exams and advance their careers. Quality is paramount at PPI. In fact, it's the driving force behind everything they do. With best-selling exam review materials developed by PPI founder Michael Lindeberg and other experts in the industry, they have been the source and solution for passing the FE, PE, and SE exams for more than 40 years. To see how PPI can help you pass your exam and for special offers and discounts exclusive to my podcast listeners, visit ppi2pass.com slash coach. That's PPI, the number two, pass.com slash coach. Okay, Mark. So what can you share with our audience about the benefits of mentoring and doing so within what you call a frame, which is a, it's some terminology that you use in your book? The wonderful thing about mentoring is that it actually has positive benefits for both the mentee and the mentor. In fact, the biggest advantage of mentoring is developing leadership skills. So there's, there's plenty of evidence that shows it's, it's good for everybody. But what we've found is that people often go into mentoring 
and they don't have a, a framework for discussing the mentoring. So what we've done is divided it into six categories with questions in each category that you need to discuss in the mentoring because there will always be within that something to work on. And the categories are personal, and I'll give an example of what I mean. Personal things, questions that you might want to use to help stimulate mentoring discussions or what am I working on and am I confident in my abilities to get it done? Uh, Are my career aspirations good? So these are the elements of career side or personal side within an organization. The next is interpersonal mentoring. How am I getting along with my leader or with my team? How can I get along with them better? How can I build stronger relationships? Uh, How am I I handle a particular sticky situation? The third is technical, and that is how comfortable am I with the fundamentals of my job? How can I prepare for the next job or the next level? Or what do I need to do to get ready for it? What are best practices? When do I apply them? The fourth category is strategic. And that would include things like, how can I develop or demonstrate some strategic thinking or planning? In what ways do I need to understand the big picture, the environment? Uh, What am I understanding now? What am I missing? And then the last two are the topical, what's hot in my field. And these are all questions that you can be discussing with the mentor or the mentor can ask you. And the last one then is organizational, which is Tell me something about the company culture, the pulse of what's happening, why certain decisions are being made the way they are, how does history shape what we're doing, why are people spending their time on certain things, or how success defined around here. If you take any one of these six categories, you can use that as a topic for mentoring, and it gives you a framework within which you can say, hey, we've covered some of this, some of this, here's where I'm feeling weak, here's where I'm feeling strong. It gives you that way to have an ongoing discussion with somebody in a mentoring relationship. That's enormous. I really, really like the way that you uh, that you've laid that out, and it's um, definitely something that will uh, will ensure that uh, that gets spelled out for everyone in the show notes. So, Mark, I, I really want to thank you for coming on the show. I, I really, truly enjoyed reading your book, which was titled "Leadership Is Half the Story: A Fresh Look at Followership, Leadership, and Collaboration." So real quick, can you tell everyone where they can, where, where can they connect with you, learn more about what you and Sam have, uh, have done and what, you, what the two of you are doing? Sure. The uh, easiest way is um, flipskills.com. We also keep on uh, Facebook a page up, which if you just uh, look up Flip Skills on Facebook, tells about the kind of events that we're doing. We uh, have a regular newsletter or ideas letter because it it really is just some ideas that we have that you can sign up for as well through our website and keep in touch that way. And of course, the book is available pretty much everywhere. So (laughs) That's awesome. Well, we'll make sure that we have in the show notes, we've got links to to the websites, the Facebook page and, and to Amazon where folks can go out and they can get their hands on a copy of this book. So again, I really want to thank you for coming on the show. Totally enjoyed the uh, the conversation today. And and I hope everyone else out there really enjoyed this episode as well. Uh, we'd love to hear your feedback, comments, and questions. So please go to engineeringcareercoach.com forward slash followership. Leave us some feedback. Leave us questions. And we'll share those with uh, with Mark and Sam so that they can uh, they can get us some responses back. And uh, we really monitor all those those comments. We're going to respond if you leave us one. So we really enjoy you being here with us. Mark, enjoy having you on the show as well. And until next time, continue to engineer your own success. Thank you for listening to the Engineering Career Coach podcast. Be sure to visit engineeringcareercoach.com where you can find all past episodes and also download a free three-part video series 
created specifically for engineers to help you best utilize LinkedIn for networking, improve your communication and speaking skills, and also to help develop your leadership abilities. Now is the time to engineer your own success.